If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we should be fairly familiar with this chapter. We've been in it now for about a month. Luke chapter 16. Um, last week we kind of started the preliminaries into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and today we'll get into those scriptures in verses 19 through 31. So the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, part 2. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So let's take a, a quick review. Uh, if you'll remember, we st- about three weeks ago, we started in this chapter. And if, you, if you've got your Bibles, you can look back up at verse 1. And you'll find there in verses 1 through 13, the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, this is a parable of, about money. And specifically, how we should use our money to prepare for uh, eternity. And the point of the parable was that the way we use our money matters. I was thinking this morning, I don't know, I think stuff like this, I was standing in the kitchen this morning and yesterday was a really nice day and just had a real nice day. And I was just thinking, you know, when I die, nobody will remember that day. You know, nobody remembers back, oh, I remember that day. People really won't remember specific events, what they'll remember is a pattern of your life, right? It's it's hard to go back. You don't have to go back 20 years and say, oh, I remember that day, or I remember what he said here or there. That's very rare. What people will remember is a pattern, how you lived your life. Everything, every day adds up. Every hour adds up. Every minute adds up. It's a, It's building something up. And that's what people remember. And our money, how we use that is a part of that. People won't remember, oh, he gave this much, or he gave that much, or he did this, what they'll remember is a pattern of how you used your money. A pattern begins to develop over your life. And so money ends up, the way we use our money is really a test run for eternity because it shows what's in our heart. It shows what we really, what really matters. It shows what we really uh, prioritize. Now, the Pharisees are listening to this parable just like we did, And it tells us in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, Jesus is going, when he gets to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he's talking to the Pharisees, okay? When he started the chapter, he's actually talking to his disciples, but now he's talking to the Pharisees. And there's two things that you need to understand about the Pharisees. There's two things we need to understand about them that kind of sets the context for today's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that is, there's two things they believed very strongly. First of all, they believed that having money was a good thing. They saw nothing wrong with the pursuit of money. In fact, as as we'll see as we move through this, they believed that if you were rich, that was a sign that God was blessing you. And that if you were a poor, that that was a sign that God was displeased with you. So they saw having money as nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it was a godly thing to go after money. God was was okay with that, okay? That was the first thing they believed. Secondly, they believed that because they were Jews, because they were children of Abraham, that it really didn't matter what they did. If they, because that's who they were. They, they, they were okay with God because of their relationship with Him, because of their race, because of, of that. They were Jews. They were children of Abraham. They were, they were okay. Don't tell us 
we got problems. Basically, it's what they were saying. So those are the two things that really at the forefront. They think money's a good thing, and they think it's a sign that God is blessing you. And secondly, they believe they're okay because they're children of Abraham. So beginning in verse 19, Jesus begins to tell them this parable. And it's a parable that we know very well. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, one thing you're going to notice, this is a parable of extremes. It is about extreme wealth, and it is about extreme poverty. And Jesus does this for a reason, okay? But more than that, it is a parable about our eternal destiny. And it's a parable about how religion... Now, and I want you to listen very closely today, because I've been... We're going to find ourselves guilty of some of these things. You know, I, I, I say this all the time, and it just keeps coming back to me week after week. Human nature does not change. Times change. Culture changes. Technology changes. People don't change. People do not change. The same issues they dealt with 2,000 years ago, we, we deal with today. We may deal with it on a different level, in a different way, but it's the same issues. And, and what it's, this parable is about, you see, religion in that day tended to view wealth and poverty as an indicator of who was going to heaven and who was going to hell. They said, man, if, if you got money, boy, you, you're, God is blessing you, you're on your way to heaven. If you're sick and poor and, and going through trials and tribulations, boy, you must have done something wrong. God is cursing you, you're on your way to hell. And religion today, and I, and I think if we really think about religion today, still tends to view people this way if we're not very careful. Okay, So this parable is really, it's as relevant today, this morning, as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus first Told it. It is addressed to religious people. Don't, don't forget this. He's telling this to religious people who think they're okay and they're confident that they're on their way to heaven. He's talking to people who saw their money as a sign that God loves me. Look, look at what He's given me. Look at how He's blessed me. God must be happy with me and I'm on my way to heaven. Everything's okay. That's who this parable is, is addressed to. It's a story about a man that goes to hell. And it is designed by Jesus to be absolutely shocking. It's designed that way. You'll see here in just a minute. But, by the way, it's better to be shocked now when you can do something about it than to wake up in hell and be shocked then and when it's all over. There's nothing to be done. So, so it's a mercy from Jesus is this parable true? We'll talk about that in just a second, so just hang on. So start in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Okay? Now, let's start right there. I want you to see how rich this man was. The Bible tells us that he typically wore purple and fine linen. Now, how do I know that? Because the Greek word that's used for clothes clothed, C-L-O-T-H-E-D. The Greek word, the Greek language is something, it's, it's different. Depending on the tense you use in the Greek, it tells us something about that word. And in the Greek, it, this word is the imperfect tense, which indicates it's an ongoing or repeated action. In other words, it's not saying that once in a while he got dressed up to go out and he had nice clothes. No, what this is telling us is he's so rich that he wears purple and fine linen every day. Okay? This guy is Bill Gates rich. 
This, this guy is Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, rich. This, these, this guy is filthy rich. See, in that day, fine linen and purple, they were as ex- purple dye was extremely hard to make, extremely hard to the process, was very time consuming. So when you bought a purple garment, it was very expensive. Fine linen was very expensive. It had to be imported. So this guy wore that, and by the way, he wore it every single day. That's how rich he was. Okay, so we're talking about filthy rich here. We're also told that he feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, every single day he ate extravagantly. I mean, he had T-bone steaks every day. I mean, whatever he wanted... Other people out scrounging and just trying to get by and maybe saving that calf for, for, you know, for special occasions or that, that lamb for special occasions. Man, this guy had lamb every day because he could afford it. He was just, he, he, I mean, he couldn't spend all the money that he had. So every day was a feast for this man. Every day he, he, he clothed himself in the very best clothes that were available. Now let's look at verse 20 through 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now there are five facts or five things that we're told about Lazarus in just this short verse. Number one, he's a beggar. Okay, so for some reason, and we don't know why, but he's unable to work. Obviously the man is sick. The Bible tells us he was laid at the gate, so he probably can't walk. So all we know is he cannot work. His only way to survive, there's no welfare system back then. Okay, he can't go to some office and sign up for welfare. There is no welfare. If you, if you can't work, you beg. That's pretty, and if you, and if nobody gives you anything, you just die. And they come take your body and they throw it in the dump. Okay, this, this guy's as bad, so he's a beggar. Number two, he's full of sores. We don't know what's wrong with him. But evidently, it is terrible. There, there's again, he can't go to the minute clinic, right? He, he can't. There's nothing to do. There's no doctors back then. He's just his, he's got sores all over his body. By the way, a condition like that would have rendered him unclean, so that when people would walk around him, they wouldn't get near him. I mean, so so not only is he is he a beggar, he can't work. He, he's he's on the lowest social status you can possibly get. He's full of sores. He's absolutely miserable. And people won't have anything to do with him because he's unclean. But we do find this. He was laid at the rich man's gate. That means somebody took pity on him. Somebody had mercy. Somebody picked him up and thought, where can we put him so that he can get some help? And they thought, I know. There's that guy down the road that is filthy rich. Let's put him at his gate. I'm sure when that guy goes in and out, as rich as he is, he'll at least he'll help Lazarus. So somebody at least had enough mercy to take him and put him at the rich man's gate, thinking that that man is so wealthy, I'm sure he'll have some mercy on Lazarus. The Bible tells us that Lazarus desired to be fed with the crumbs. We know he's hungry. He sits there and he's laying at the gate and he's dreaming, if I could just have the crumbs that fall from the table. Forget the T-bone steak. Forget just, just the little crumbs. I mean, he's dreaming about this. Okay, so we know he's, he's, he's hungry. And then fifth, it tells us that the dog licks his sores. I, I don't know what's wrong with him, but we know he is so weak that he literally does not have the strength 
to keep the dogs away from him. He is so weak, so alone, nobody's there to help him, nobody can shoo the dog. I mean, do you see the picture Jesus is painting? See, what you've got to, you, what we need to do is notice the extremes. In, in, a sh- in a couple of short verses, Jesus paints a picture of two absolute extremes, and he does this on purpose. One guy is rich beyond measure. He's got more money than he'll ever be able to spend. He has no pain. He has no want. He has no hurt. He's got people all around him to, to help him, to take care of him, to, 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 to serve him. This guy could not have it any better. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a guy who's got it as absolutely bad as it can get. He's poor. He's hurting. He's hungry, and he's all alone. You cannot get it any worse than this guy. Now, there is a reason that Jesus does this. You've got to see the extremes. Okay, One guy, as good as it can get. The other guy, as bad as it can get. Jesus does that for a reason. Now, to understand his reason, we have to go back. Now, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to remind you. You need to understand the mindset of that day. You see, it was very common in that day for to believe that every calamity a person experienced, sickness, uh, poverty, tribulation, when something happened to someone, it was very common to believe that that was a punishment for their sins. You, you find this all over the Bible. For example, you've all heard of Job's friends, right? Job gets sick, got sores, he loses everything he has, and we know... Because we get to peek behind the curtain. We know he's done nothing wrong. But Job's friends come to him in, in Job chapter 4 and say, Hey, have you ever heard of an innocent, this ever happening to an innocent person? Of course not. Innocent people, this doesn't happen to innocent people. It's those who plow iniquity. It's those who sow sin. This is, that's what ha- everybody see that? They were convinced. Go read Job. You'll, you'll spend about, 25 chapters of his friends trying to get convince him, just tell us what you did. Just tell us what you did. And he didn't do nothing. But see, that was the mindset in that day. If you have trouble, you've done something wrong. This belief was very prevalent in pagan cultures. You remember in the book of Acts, chapter 28, Paul is shipwrecked. Everybody remember that? He goes up on the island, and it's cold, it's rainy, and they decide to build a fire. And he, he's in, in 28.4, he reaches in to, to grab a stick or pick up a stick, and a viper comes out and attaches itself to his hand. And it says, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt, this man's a murderer. This man's a sinner, right? Justice. They didn't believe in God, but notice, fate, justice has not allowed him to live. That was very common in that day, even in pagan societies. If you did, if something happens to you, what did you do? The gods are coming after you. Justice is coming after you. Fate is coming. That was very, very common. By the way, even Jesus' own disciples believed this kind of thing. In John chapter 9, they're walking by the temple, and they look over and they see a blind man. And Jesus' disciple says, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. What, who, who did something wrong? See, that was very common in that day. Very, very common. You, it, it, everybody, it was just, it was just considered just that's what it, what, the way it worked. Nobody even doubted that this was the way that it worked. 
By the way, they also believed the opposite was true. That someone who was rich and was certainly blessed by God. Y'all remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, uh, Rabbi, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, well, you know, you need to, you need to keep the laws and this and that. And he says, well, I've done all that since I've been a young man. Jesus said, you need to do one more thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And y'all remember the Bible says he walked away sad because he had a lot of money. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says what? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And do you remember what his disciples says? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, if a rich person can't be saved, who can? Has that ever bothered you? But see, you've got to understand their mindset. To them, rich meant blessed. Rich meant loved by God. If the rich man who's blessed and loved by God can't be saved, well, who can? They could not believe that came out of his mouth because that went exactly against everything they had been taught from a little child. Rich means blessed. Money means blessed. Rich means you're loved by God. Jesus said, man... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. They were astonished. Why? Because that was their mindset. Poverty, loneliness, all that meant you're cursed by God. Wealth, all of comfort, all that means you're blessed by God. See, this idea of prosperity religion, what we call the prosperity gospel, been around a long, 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 long time time. There's always been this idea in religion that poor people are cursed and rich people are blessed. There was a, a poll done this year, um, and I read the results of it in Christianity Day. It re- this was back in June or July. It reported that religious people in general were more likely to say that poverty is a result of a lack of effort. They asked a bunch of people, they said, are you a Christian? Yeah. And they asked them one question, is poverty because of sin or a lack of effort? Is poverty because something people don't do or something they do do? Everybody with me? And, and religious people, for the most part, 46% of all Christians said it was because they don't work hard enough. And in fact, among white evangelical Christians, that percentage was even higher, 53%, while only 29% of non-believers said the same. Now listen, I'm not here to... To, 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 to take one side or the other. Does, does sin lead to poverty? Sure it does. I mean, you go out and have children out of wedlock and, and disobey all of God's laws, I'll tell you really quickly, you're, you're, you're going to find yourself poor and wanting. Okay? We, we all understand that. But at the same time, we need to be very careful because there's a lot of us here. I was thinking about this this week. Listen, I've always been a, a hard worker. And I've always been self-motivated. But when I was 16 years old, Linda Stalvey's mom and dad gave me a job in her store probably because they knew my parents. When I was 19 years old, Uncle Dallas got me a job at the DOT, put me through college, and that job led to another job, which led to another job, which led to the job I've been at for the last 20 years. And I can point back to people that helped me along the way. Can you? Can you? Yes or no? Sure you can. 
You see, being born into, in certain families, in certain ways, in certain times can be a help. Would I have had the same thing if I'd have been born in a different situation? I don't know. But the point is, it's very easy to look at somebody that doesn't have anything and says, that's their fault. And to look at somebody that has something and say, look at me. Look how hard I worked. And you forget about the circumstances. So, so we need to be careful about that. Al Moeller of the President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary said this, there's a strong Christian impulse to understand poverty as deeply rooted in morality. Often, as the Bible makes clear, an unwillingness to work in bad financial decisions or in broken family structures. Here's the point. Back then, that's what they believed. You're poor, you've, you, you've, you've made some bad decisions, you've sinned. Right? You're wealthy, you're, you're, boy, God is blessing you. You have, you're not sinning, because if you were sinning, you'd be, everybody with me? That's, that's very easy to fall into that trap. And it's a cultural thing that people kind of fall into. Now, in this parable, if we were sitting there in front of Jesus today, He paints a scenario where one man gets all the good and one man gets all the bad. And according to religious mindset of that day, you wouldn't even have to ask them which one of them is going to heaven. It would be absolutely obvious. One man is living his best life now. And yes, that is a dig at Joel Osteen. One man has his best life now. He has more money than he could ever use. He is perfectly healthy. He's got friends. He's got a house. He's got a servant. Everything looks great. He's living his best life now. And the Pharisees think he must be a righteous man because if you've got all that, obviously God loves you. Obviously God is blessing you. Obviously you're on your way to heaven. And then you've got this other poor guy. Now he's got to be a... Not, he's not just a sinner. He's got to be a terrible sinner. I mean, look at him. He's alone. He's unclean. He, he's poor. He, he's so weak that he can't even keep dogs. What did he do? Surely he's on his way to hell for all the things that he's done in this life. Now remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. They loved money, Luke tells us in chapter, in verse 14. And they justified themselves by having a theology that was very convenient. See, to them, the more money you had, the more God was blessing you. In fact, to them, loving money and pursuing money is just like loving God and pursuing righteousness. Sound familiar? See, that's, that's the very definition of the prosperity gospel. God loves you. God wants to bless you. God wants to grow your wealth. I mean, nothing's changed, folks. Devil's smart, but he, he ain't that smart. He just, if it ain't broke, he don't fix it. Same ideas that worked 2,000 years ago, just keep working. They just keep working because people are stupid. That's the truth. People are, are people. So they just keep working. He don't change nothing. He don't have to. See, the prosperity gospel that is alive today was alive back then. Now, the truth, of course, has already been stated by Jesus in verse 15. He told the, the Pharisees, what is exalted among men, what you think is, is, is all great and good, it's an abomination to God. To pursue money like that that you think is great and good, that's an abomination. To make that your priority, to go after that in life, that's an abomination to God. He's already told them that. So he, 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 he goes into this parable and he tells them the parable and so far 
this parable seems to fit right with their theology. They're sitting there thinking, oh yeah, oh man, this rich man is a, is a godly man. And in their mind, Lazarus is a sinner. Lazarus is going to hell. Yet Jesus is about to turn that thinking completely around 180 degrees. You see, because death changes everything. Death changes everything. Look at verse 22. The poor man died, this is Lazarus, and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now, here's something. Notice, and we're going to talk about this, whether or not this is a parable. Normally with somebody like Lazarus, a beggar who had no family, nobody to take care of him, when you died, there was no burial. They literally took your body, took it out to the dump in the valley of Hinnon and threw it on the dump and it was burned with the rest of the trash. They didn't, they didn't bury anybody back then, right? I mean, rich people got buried, people with families got buried, but poor beggars, street trash, you just threw them on the, on the trash dump in the valley of Hinnon with the rest of them. That's what normally happened. See, the, the jolt in this story comes right out of the gate with a, with a statement from Jesus that's absolutely stunning. Instead of garbage collectors picking up his body and throwing it on the dump, the angels escort him directly to Abraham's side. I mean, the Pharisees are listening to this and they probably can't... What? How can that be? Listen, he talked... Abraham's side is where he goes. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. Do you know who they... There's two people they revere. There are two people they honor. One is Moses and the other is Abraham. He's the father of the nation. He is a hero to all of them. And this sinner, this guy supposedly who God hates and God has cursed, dies and is escorted to Abraham's side. How can that be? He's escorted by angels. I mean, there could be no greater honor than than what happens to this man. See, in their mind, they fully expect that to happen to the rich guy. But it doesn't. It happens to the poor guy. And I want to pause here for just a second. And somebody asked this earlier. Is this a real story or is it a parable? Well, the, 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 the answer is pretty easy. I have no clue, right? Because it doesn't tell us. The, the only thing that's really different... First of all, Jesus doesn't say, let me tell you a parable. He just says there was a rich man. He just starts right off telling... Um, the only one thing that's different about it is he names names. He gives that guy a name, Lazarus. doesn't give the rich man a name. He gives the beggar a name. That's different from, from other parables. Normally, he doesn't. Just, he just says there was a man or there were some workers or there was a, a, a woman. So we don't know. I tend to think it's a parable, but that's just my opinion. The fact is we really don't know. In either case, there are some odd things in this story that we need to be very careful about. For example... The Bible says, or the parable says, or the story says, angels escort him to heaven. Now, by the way, we don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. Not that I'm aware of. Now, does that mean that angels don't escort us? No. I don't know when you die what happens. I don't know. The Lord hasn't seen fit to say this is what happens. Could angels escort us to heaven? Sure. Could they not? Sure. I don't know. The point is, this is the only place in Scripture where we see this happen. So we need to be careful that we don't build a theology around it because it's only there one time. By the way, he's taken to, there's no burial and he's taken to heaven. Is it his body? Well, remember, the rich man's going to look 
I'll cross the chasm from hell, and he's going to say, send Lazarus. He recognizes him, doesn't he? Does that mean that he sees him? Is that his body? It could be. Could not be. I don't know. We need to be careful though. We know, we know for example that right now our bodies disintegrate until the second coming. Then our bodies are raised to be with Christ. Our bodies don't go to heaven right now. We know that from other scriptures. So we need to be careful of that. Why does he take him to Abraham and not to Jesus? Paul says when we're separated from our bodies, we're with the Lord. But he's taken to Abraham's side. Well, obviously he's telling this story before the death, before his death and resurrection. He's, he's telling this story before the New Testament is written and he's talking to Pharisees. He's, he wants to make a point with them. And for them, the greatest place you could go would be to Abraham's side. So I think we need, again, we need to be careful we don't build theology off of these, off of these things. Here's my point. Don't take a piece of this story that's not supported by other scriptures and, and, and build some kind of theology out of it. This is a spiritual story designed to teach a spiritual lesson. Focus on that. Don't focus on, is it a real story? Is it a parable? Did it? No. Focus on the lesson. See, sometimes we can get pulled away into these little tidbits and we miss what Jesus is trying to tell us. And that's what we want to focus on. Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was, what? Buried. Now, it's no surprise that the rich man buried. In fact, he probably gets a huge funeral. Listen, let a rich man die. Watch how many people show up. Yes or no? A lot of people are going to show up, right? Um, everybody, they come to pay their respects, right? They're going to talk about what a great man he was. They all made money off of him in some way, and they're, you know, they're thinking, okay, I gotta, st-. I mean, rich man dies, a lot of people come. Poor man dies, don't very many people show up. That's just life. It was life then, and it's life today. Now, if the Pharisees weren't shocked enough at what happened to Lazarus, they're about to be shocked even more. Look at verses 22 to 23. The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, he saw Abraham far off, and he saw Lazarus at his side. Now let's talk a little bit, first of all, about Hades. The, the parable here uses the word Hades. What is Hades? Well, in the Old Testament, you would hear a word used, Sheol. Okay? And Sheol was a, a, a place in the Old Testament to describe the place of departed souls. It, it was always used in contrast to heaven. For example, Psalms 139.8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Right? It was always this place. It was kind of this foggy place, right? Did it, did it mean the grave? Did it mean this abode of the damned? We didn't really know. It didn't give us a lot of detail. It just kind of contrasted it to heaven. Now, as you come into the New Testament, the, the Old Testament word Sheol in Hebrew is translated into the word Hades, which is in Greek. But as you come to the New Testament, you start to get more detail about this place called Sheol or Hades, right? And it becomes more clearly defined as hell. For example, every usage of the word Hades in the New Testament is an, is, a, is, a, is an exact contrast to heaven, and it refers to the abode of the damned. It's never used as a place where believers go, and it becomes synonymous in the New Testament with hell. And we see that, by the way, in today's passage, right? He goes to 
Hades, but it says he's in what? Torment. He's being tormented in the flame. So these stories like this, parables like this, begin to add more and more detail to what Hades are. And Jesus adds a lot of the detail in the Gospels. Now, there's nothing else... Here's another thing. There's nothing in the Bible that ever teaches us that someone in hell can look across and see people in heaven. This is the only place this is mentioned in the Bible. Now, does that mean that someone in hell can see into heaven? I have no clue. This could just be something that Jesus is making up to teach a lesson. Or maybe it's some. By the way, could you imagine anything worse? I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just saying. But could you imagine anything worse than being in hell and being able to look up every day and see what you missed? See your loved ones. That's horrible. I mean, that is absolutely... I don't know if it's true or not. Okay, but so again, I'm going to remind you, let's don't focus on those things because I don't know if this is just a, a, a story that Jesus is making up or if it's something that I don't know. So we're going to focus on other things. Look at verse 24. He's in hell, he's in torment. He looks up and he sees Father Abraham and he sees Lazarus by his side. Verse 24. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now this is a very revealing statement in for a lot of reasons. Number one, notice what he says, Father Abraham. See, he wants mercy... And the only thing, you're going to notice something in a minute. He doesn't say, I don't belong here. I was a good man. This is too much. He doesn't say any of those things. He wants mercy, and the only way thing he can think of, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, Father Abraham. Remember that. only thing he can draw on is his, is his race. He knows that's his only hope for, for mercy. Now, what does that tell us? Okay? One thing it tells us is that in hell, you have a fully active conscience. Okay? All those illusions that we have in this life about how good we are, about how worthy we are, when we get to hell, those are gone. You will see for the first time who you... You will see, I believe, in hell the way you are seen. In other words, you'll see yourself with a reality for the very first time. In Matthew 22, we haven't gotten to this parable. This is the parable of the wedding garment. It's a story Jesus tells about a wedding. And when you come into this wedding, you have to have on a garment. It shows you were invited. It says, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And I'll never, this has always got me. The man was what? What do you say? When Jesus is standing in front of you, there's nothing to say. There's no excuse. You will be absolutely speechless. See, the guilt is never going to go away. The realization, the conscience is never going to be silent. You see, today, we, we can dampen that conscience with drugs, alcohol, with sports. Anything we can fill our mind with so that we don't have to think. We do it every day. See, our, our conscience today is misinformed by a perverted culture. You see, it's a funny thing with me, with homosexuality. 
First of all, they wanted to get married, right? So now, okay, you can get married. But it never stops. As long as there's one person standing up and saying that's wrong, they will never stop. Why? Because inside, there's a voice that says, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And as long as there's somebody repeating that to them in culture, saying, no, you're wrong, that voice, they just think if I can get everybody to tell me it's okay, then maybe I'll believe it's okay. Are you with me? If I can just get the whole world to say, you're okay, then maybe I'll really believe it's okay down deep inside. But of course they won't. But you see, that's the way it is in hell. The conscience is never silent. And by the way, there's no TV to go watch. There's, there's nothing to distract you from your own thoughts, your own realization. And that's part of the torment that, that hell brings. That, that guilt and that shame will be felt and it will be felt relentlessly for eternity. David said in Psalms 51.3, My sin is ever before me. He said, I can't get away from it. I, 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 you know, I go hunting, I'm thinking about it. I go fishing, I'm thinking about it. I'm in the temple, I'm thinking about it. I lay my head down at night, I'm, I can't get away from it. See, that's the way it is with people in hell forever. You cannot get away from it. Daniel 12.2 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Can you imagine having shame? There's nothing like it. I've said this before. I don't know what happened to shame, but it's pretty much gone. But for those of you that still feel it, you need to count your blessings that you feel it. And there's nothing worse than to feel shame. To feel like you've let somebody down. That's a, is, am I right? Is that a horrible feeling? Imagine feeling that every day, every minute, 24 hours a day for eternity. See, that's what, that's what those in hell feel. Shame and self-hate forever. Notice what you do not hear from the rich man. Do I deserve this? What's the point of all this? Right? How is this fair, Abraham? Abraham, I was a good person, so you don't hear any of that. Why? Because he knows he deserves to be where he is. He knows. When he finally sees everything clearly, he knows he belongs where he is. In fact, you'll notice there's no repentance. He never says, I'm sorry. Because see, by the way, hell, hell is not remedial. It's not there to remediate anybody. It's not there to make anybody better. It's punishment. It's not remedial at all. He asked for one thing, and that's relief. Verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sin, notice he calls his name, sin Lazarus, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. And so it turns out he did know who that guy was at the gate. He had recognized him. He had noticed him. He didn't know his name. But you see, he wouldn't give Lazarus a crumb of bread. But now he wants Lazarus to give him a drop of water. See, the one who showed no mercy now wants mercy, and there's none to be had. I mean, that is... You understand, can you imagine Jesus standing there telling you this story? And this, and it's just blowing your theology out of the water. Verse 25, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted 
and you are in anguish. Listen, be very careful you don't misunderstand the point. The point of this parable is not that all rich people go to hell. And the point of this parable is not that all poor people go to heaven. That's not the point at all. The point is, you cannot take what happens in someone's life as an indicator of their eternal destiny. Not all rich people are going to heaven. Not all poor people are going to hell. But you cannot look at riches and say, God loves me. God's blessing me. And you can't look at poverty and say, boy, that, that, they've done something wrong. No. That's what Jesus is saying. You cannot look at money or lack of money as an indicator of someone's eternal destiny. Just because somebody's rich and healthy and wealthy doesn't mean they're going to heaven. And just because someone is sick and alone and in poverty doesn't mean they're going to hell. It's got nothing to do with it. Listen, I heard this past week from a, a good friend of mine uh, in another city, a, a lady, probably one of the best Christians I've ever known, and just found out. And if I told you what she'd been through in her life, it would, it would shock you. And I talked to her last week, and they they found a lump in her breast, and the cells are in probably in her lymph nodes. And I'm thinking, why her? Why her? Why not me? Why her? Has she done something wrong? No. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't look at things like that and think, oh, they've done... No. Now, can I tell you why it's happened? No. Got no clue. That's God's business. That's between her and Him and... The, the plan he's got for her life, and he's got a plan for my life. I don't understand all that. But what Jesus is saying in this parable is, do not look at things that happen in life, especially things like poverty, and think that that somehow is an indicator that God doesn't love you or God does love you. In fact, now that we've 2,000 years later looking back, when Jesus says it's harder or easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, I should even be looking at that, well, listen, take your money. (laughs) I don't want it. Because it tells me that money is a detriment to us. It keeps us from finding the narrow way. And I don't want anything to keep me from finding the narrow way. Verse 26, and we'll quit here. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Listen, here's the absolute horror of this situation. This is how it is and this is how it will always be. There is no change. Even if Lazarus wanted to, even if we wanted to come to you, we cannot do it. There is a, it, it, this is the way it is. It is separation from God, outer darkness for eternity. No one in hell will ever visit heaven and no one in heaven will ever visit hell. We're gonna, obviously we couldn't make through this in, in one day, but we'll continue, uh, into next week. So if you want to read ahead, uh, feel free to, to do that. Let's pray. Father,